Don't talk to me unless it's about this. Today, we're talking about the first part of Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And we've read parts one, two, and three. And this is a story of love, of race, immigration. And we follow the characters across the U.S., Nigeria, the U.K. And we're mostly following high school sweethearts, Ifemelu and Obinze, who grew up in Lagos, Nigeria, and then they both live separate lives abroad. And later in life, they come back and they're both living in Lagos again. And Marie, once again, you have chosen an amazing book for us. This is a book you've already read. And you also have connected us with two great guests that we're going to meet in a moment. And Marie, I was going to ask you to first tell us about how you picked this book and how you connected us with Meredith and Leah, who are joining us today. Well, I. Thank you. I first read this book probably 10 years ago. I don't I don't know. I think it came out um, in the mid 2000s. And I remember just loving it at the time. And I have a very small bookshelf now because I've moved so much and I only keep the books that I love the most. And this is one of those that is on the shelf. And when you asked me to do this podcast with you, I and it's about all the things that you love the most, I thought of this book immediately and wanted to reread it. I mean, I essentially remembered almost nothing about the book other than the broad strokes. Uh, so it feels new to me as well. And I have loved it again, just as much as the first time, which is great. Uh, and then, yeah, I invited Meredith and Leah, who are both a part of uh, Unified Sisters with me. And I will let Meredith tell you more about Unified Sisters because she's one of the co-founders. So I will just jump in and introduce both of them. So I'll let Meredith, if you want to get started sharing who you are and, and what Unified Sisters is. And then Leah would love to hear from you about your experience with Unified Sisters too. Sure. Thanks, Marie. Um, so my name is Meredith Lockwood. I am a co-founder of Unified Sisters Co-op. Uh, my best friend, Jessica Johnson, we've been best friends for over two decades. We decided in 2020 to co-found Unified Sisters Co-op because it was the height of the pandemic and the world had lost George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And for us, it was a major reckoning moment in our lives. We are originally from Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, I am a white woman. Jessica is a black woman. We were so fortunate to go to a dynamic and diverse high school. And from there, we have a circle of incredible girlfriends. We are a support system. We lean on each other. And we've had that friendship since we were teenagers. And during that time of early 2020, we really were craving more connection. You know, the world had shut down. We were adapting. And we needed to talk about racism in America. So we decided to bring in about 50 of our community members, um, a very diverse balance of women and women of female identifying persona. And from there, we launched our Reckoning Pods. And we meet once a month for 90 minutes. And we talk about critical topics as well as more powerful and important themes. Um, one is really important is Black Joy. And we provide a curated syllabus for our members and we host and have an agenda and it's incredibly robust conversations. And I think one of the most important part of the co-op is storytelling. 
and making connections. Uh, myself as a white woman and a co-founder to quote Brene Brown, in this space, I know I'm here to get it right and not to be right. And I'm so grateful for our growing members because I think all of us bring empathy and awareness that we are here to unlearn and relearn new things. And we started with our first cohort and now we have a second cohort. And just so grateful that Leah and Marie are not only members, but they're also our cabinet members. And our cabinet is a really important part because we have 10 women in our cabinet who have shown leadership and we have a peer review just to make sure that we're always tuned in to what our community needs and how we best can serve each other. And at the heart of Unified Sisters Co-op is where we pair community and education. Leah, do you want to introduce yourself and share a little bit about how you got involved with Unified Sisters and anything else you want to share about yourself too? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Leah Watson. My pronouns are she, her. I, um, as Meredith said, I'm a member of the cabinet of the co-op. I have really enjoyed being a part of the co-op. I went to undergrad with Jessica and would jump at the opportunity to support anything she's doing, but especially this because I do work on racial justice for professionally. And um, so I'm always thinking about these issues and how I can make progress or where change is going to come. And I previously worked at a racial justice organization. That's the framing. And I enjoyed that work. But then I also moved to a different organization that does racial justice with as one of the many things it does, because I feel like we need to try to integrate these conversations across the board. And so I was really excited about the opportunity to have these conversations. Um, I think there are many conversations that people have, but they are, I caught, in my experience, I wasn't having conversations about race with my white friends frequently um, before 2020. And then there was a period where people reached out and they wanted to talk about things. But I do think that there is a need to normalize these conversations. And it has been nice to have a space to talk, sometimes to grieve, sometimes to celebrate, often to laugh about um, experiences that people have and to recognize the shared nature of our experiences across the country, across races, across ages. So I found the conversations to be very rich and just a place that feels affirming of the experiences that I've had. And also it's been a space where I learned a lot about my own privilege and, you know, intersectionalities that I have not explored personally. And so I think it's been a great experience and I'm really grateful to be here today with y'all, but also grateful to have been in the co-op for two years of thinking and challenging and recognizing different things that are happening around my world that I may not have interpreted the same way. I'd be curious to hear if any of you have one particular memory or kind of learning moment that really sticks out to you in your time with Unified Sisters. Well, I I could go really deep here. Uh, Leah and Marie know we could go real deep on a really powerful note and, and many came to mind, but I, I'm going to bring a little bit of uh, comedic value here. Um, I, you know, I, I am a co-founder um, as, a, as a white woman. That's in a, a, a huge privilege for me to be in an anti-racism space um, and to have the trust of our community members. And I would say it probably took me a year to ask a question um, to one of our pods. Uh, actually, I asked it to both pods, I should say. Um, I was always curious if I, as a white woman, could attend with an invitation 
homecoming at an HBCU. Many of our members went to HBCUs. It's very celebrated in the co-op. And I was just, I love homecoming. I love a drum line, um, the dancing. But I also want to make sure that I'm very respectful. I stay in my lane when appropriate. Um, I never want to try to co-opt, uh, you know, something that is for the Black community. I think a lot of white people, we, we tend to do that. We get a little envious and we want to be like, what's going on over there? And the, 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 the conversation that unfolded was funny and welcoming. And I have an open invite, but it was incredibly educational and formative too, uh, because there are definitely some parallels I learned. I would say that two that stood out to me, we did one on cultural appropriation, which is a big topic to cover. Um, and it was one that people wanted. We could have gone on and on and on because people had so many thoughts. And we ended it with a breaking into groups to try to figure out steps that you should take to determine if something is cultural appropriation, which I thought was really meaningful and something that I've used to challenge myself when shopping or signing up for classes or just as I move throughout the world, thinking about the principles that we talked about there. Um, I also really enjoyed our session on fat phobia, which is just, we talked a lot, a lot of people talked about their journeys with their bodies and just commitments that we were making to be present and happy and not to live all of this decade like we did our 20s, like we did our teens of like, oh, I wish I was as fat as over some I thought it was fat. So I thought that that one was another one that I carry with me, that they've all been really great. And I'll just say, because um, both of you spoke to some of the great moments that I've experienced too, that cultural appropriation conversation was so rich. I still remember it now and think of it and brought it to my workplace as well. Um, and I think my favorite thing or moments in the co-op have been the moments where I get to listen to people really vulnerably sharing or have been <laughs> one of the people sharing pretty vulnerably. I remember pretty early on, we were talking about sort of learning about your family's history and ethnic heritage um, as a way to understand racial dynamics in a different way. And I was sharing some things that I had learned about my family background. And I remember I literally got like, like flushed, flustered. We're, we're doing this on the internet, right? So I've not met any of these people in person. And I took off my like sweater that I was wearing in the moment because I just got so like flushed and flustered and felt so vulnerable. And it was a moment that I didn't know if anybody else noticed how it made me feel. And then I later met Jess the co-founder, um, Meredith's co-founder that, that we were talking about earlier in person for lunch a couple months later. And she told me that that moment had meant a lot to her that I had shared that. And she remembered me taking off my sweater and she could tell how much it meant to me to like share that, how challenging it was for me to share that. And it just made me realize, you know, um, even though we were so separated during this time and like on the internet and talking about these really uh, vulnerable, challenging topics such that, you know, race and, and everything that goes along with that can be, um, we had really connected um, and that she had noticed that subtle, that subtle moment. And it meant something to her the way that it had meant something to me. So um, I just can't say enough good things about the work that Unified Sisters is doing and, and the way that it's connecting people. And, and we need to be having more conversations like it, I think, in the world. <laughs> 
Thank you to all of you yeah. for sharing that. Do you want to? Well, before get us we in? get into the yeah. book, I do want to ask how can people find out more about Unified Sisters? How can people find out more? How can they get involved? Is the group always open for membership or how does that work if people want to learn more or get involved? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, right now we're in a really transformative period for Unified Sisters Co-op. We started during the pandemic. So we launched on Zoom for our Reckoning Pods uh, and we realized that Zoom fatigue is real. Also now in 2022, uh, the world is opening back up and a lot of us are shifting to new realities. Some of our members have gotten to plan their weddings. Um, Others have had to go back to the office. Others are welcoming new children. So we're really at a position where we're going inwards and to reflect and listen to our community about what they need and what they want. So right now you can find us on Instagram. Uh, Jess and I are going to do more Instagram lives to be able to interact with a broader community about these really important topics and also get really great feedback uh, from our current members and potentially new members, what they want to talk about. Um, We're exploring a podcast. uh, So, and we will launch a website soon once um, we kind of dig deeper and really reflect on uh, what our next steps are. Before we start talking about Americana, we're going to hear from a few members of the Unified Sisters Co-op about their most memorable experiences in the group. Thank you, Anne-Marie, Mackenzie, and Kat for your messages. Hi, my name is Anne-Marie. I'm from Brooklyn, and I'm a part of the wonderful Unified Sisters Co-op. So in thinking about the time that I've spent with these wonderful women, and I'm in the East Pod or the Super East Pod, uh, which means we're on the East Coast. Uh, one of the most substantial experiences I've had, which is so hard to rank, but it had to be our discussion around like a world event that was going on. And we were trying, we were having a very robust conversation about what's happening in other parts of the world. And in that conversation specifically, I had been very quiet, which is unusual to me in general, uh, unusual for me. And we went around the room and Meredith asked a very specific question about, you know, what does this mean to us and how can we help? And literally my answer was, I'm sorry to say this, but I don't care. And it was received so warmly. And I feel like everyone in the co-op like felt my rationale. They welcomed it. They championed it. And it was a really substantial moment for me because we live in cancel culture. So it's very refreshing to be amongst very smart women or people who identify as women of all ethnicities basically sit in there and saying, you know what, that's awesome. And we're so thankful for your transparency and your words and like everything you bring. And I have never felt more validated as a black woman, but just as a human being than in that moment where I felt noticed, welcomed, hugged, loved, even virtually. So the co-op was definitely one of the things that I was so thankful to be brought into because those women still nourish me to that day. I've made excellent friendships and I'm so thankful that I got to be there. Hello, my name is Mackenzie Thomas. I'm a founding member of the Unified Sisters Co-op. In thinking about a particular moment uh, during my time with the co-op that uh, really stuck out for me and and, and had a major impact on me was uh, one of our reckoning pods on cultural appropriation. Being a Black woman, um, I am so used to discussing cultural appropriation in which other 
races um, are appropriating my culture. Uh, but this time, we not only talked about that, but we talked about it um, with other cultures as well, particularly with um, Indigenous communities. And one of the things that really stuck out is that when you are a part of a marginalized community, you are so used to uh, always being in the in this space where people are doing something to you and you're rarely given the mirror of when you were doing something to someone else. And we had some conversations about the cultural appropriation of indigenous culture and some of the smallest things about wearing, um, you know, clothing or having um, home goods that, uh, you know, are really appropriating different tribes or tribal culture in general. And you don't think about this, but it happens all the time and it happens um, really with ignorance and not thinking about uh, how you yourself, even as somebody who's been appropriated, can also appropriate others. Hi, I am Kat Furtado. I am a speech language therapist and an artist living in San Diego, California, and I'm a very grateful member of the Unified Sisters Co-op. One of the most powerful moments for me was a calling in within one of the reckoning pods wherein um, uh, a member called everyone back and said, hey, listen, we're talking about this from this perspective, but we need to pull back, redirect, and take it from this perspective. And the whole conversation shifted. I think the thing that makes Unified Sisters so brilliant is that it moves from an intersectional place. It starts from intersectionality so that when somebody says, hey, but have you considered this? Every person within that group understands that this is a, it's a point of intersection. It's another thing to consider. And if we haven't considered it before, it's not a point of shame. It's a point of growth. And um, I think that's what makes Unified Sisters so powerful. It's an opportunity every single time we converse to learn something new, share something, um, and work towards a better, more inclusive future. And I think with that, we'll get into Americana. And I wanted to start with asking you all about what I thought at was the biggest pivotal moment in this first portion we read, which is when Ifemelu goes radio silent on Obinze and she has this really traumatic sexual, unwanted sexual experience where she's totally desperate for money, has no money left and has not been able to get a job again and again and again. And she goes back to this man who she had met who, you know, basically wanted like uh, a sexual escort for the night. And she has so much what, you know, what I took as shame and a lot of confusing feelings going on. And then she just stops responding to any of Obinze's messages and doesn't even open them, which I thought was a really interesting piece that Chimamanda did where she didn't even see what Obinze was saying. And I'm curious to hear from all of you what you think was really going on for her in that moment. And if you thought, you know, oh, if only she had had this kind of person telling her something or if there was something that you feel like could have helped her in that moment. And I know she had her her friend, um, I think it was her friend, Ganika, who said to her, you know, I, th I think you're maybe depressed but that didn't seem to connect for her. She, that, you know, that wasn't what she needed. So would anyone like to start sharing their reactions to that moment? I can go. 
I, I just felt really heartbroken in that moment for for them both. And uh, it was sort of like the one lifeline that it felt like if Emelu had in Obinze in this sort of really hard moment in her life, she cut that off too. And so, I mean, we I also want to talk about their love story. <laughs> I feel like we skipped over in starting here, but that's okay. Because I think their love story is, so beautiful and it's like one of my favorite love stories that I read in a book in a long time and so I think I felt viscerally the heartbreak of her rejecting him and and the fact that it was because she felt so much shame uh made it even harder but Leah what 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 was your reaction no I too focused in on how much shame she felt and I thought they do have such a beautiful love story and it is almost a testament to their love story. Like she could not imagine talking to him and not telling him what happened. She couldn't imagine like hiding it from, it was just a foregone conclusion. When I talk to him, I have to tell him. When I talk to him, I have to read everything that he said up to this point. I can't, you know, I can't jump in and skip over this, but it was heartbreaking to see her by herself and really sinking down a deep hole. And I think that there's lots of times where we get in our minds and something just spirals. And the amount of shame she felt was really heartbreaking. But also the fact that he kept reaching out and reaching out through a variety of people through the years, um, even years later when she was in Maryland and he found out that she was living in Maryland and wanted someone to check on her. That part was a beautiful side of love, but it was also, um, on one hand, it was heartbreaking, but then we get to him and he gets really in a bad space and he pulls back from his family too, because he can't show up for them and lie and show up for them and not, and omit how bad his circumstances are. So maybe he would have understood, but it was hard to see. I think for me, one of the key terms was the author's use of depression, because I appreciated the aspect that they explained in Nigeria, um, in the culture, depression was kind of something that just a lot of Americans get, you know, maybe we over-medicate, maybe we exaggerate it. Um, I had moved to the Netherlands. Um, I'm a former New Yorker, um, and I had worked in a really intense industry for a number of years. Um, and then I went to the Netherlands, which was a very big uh, culture shock for many things. And I had met a friend um, who was going through a burnout and it's a medical burnout in the Netherlands. And in, in New York, just to focus there, a burnout was kind of a running joke. It's like, oh, you're burnout. Yeah, you're tired. You know, grab a coffee. Let's keep going. Uh, but in the Netherlands, it's, it's, it's a sensitive topic. It's, it's taken very serious. Um, and it was a really great parallel that I appreciate the author took depression for what it was known in Nigerian culture and then how we as Americans talk about it. And for me, I thought that was one of the enriching parts where mental health became a focus. And then under layers of financial challenges. I mean, she was doing the work. She was hustling, working hard. She was going through so much rejection on trying to find a job um, and then desperation. So I really appreciated all the layers she brought into that storyline. And I remember feeling so desperate with her. I couldn't believe every time she went to these jobs and I was like, surely she's going to get this job. She's way overqualified. And again and again. And, and I thought, oh, how can just we're getting so low with her, you know, like you love her so much. Uh, and I feel like Chimamanda did such a good job of taking you there with her emotionally 
And you really waited till she hit rock bottom until something improved and that she got that babysitting job because there was a seed earlier that implies she eventually gets that babysitting job. So I was waiting for that, but she got, you know, had to get so much lower before she came to that point. And going back to their love story, I know, Marie, we <laughs> we will get to that because that is my favorite part of the book. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Marie, do you want to talk us through what you want to share about their amazing love story? I mean, there's so many parts of it. I, I the One of the things that I had written in my notes was um, even just the relationship she had with his mother, too, I thought was really beautiful where, you know, she was always over at their house. Uh, they had this beautiful, respectful relationship. Um, I mean, I don't know how you all feel about the mother asking if if Amelu to tell her when they're going to have sex. That's a little bit weird, maybe. But, I, you know, it just felt to me like she treated her as um, an adult and um, wanted the best for both of them. So I loved that part of their relationship was just the the support of the mom. Too. I remember reading that scene with Obinze's mom talking to Ifemela about sex. And it's interesting when you read these conversations, because I think earlier she also had a conversation with one of her parents or someone at school, some other adult talking to her about sex. And you don't actually know the tone people are using. Um, and so I think when I first read the conversation with Obinze's mom, I was a little irked that this was being put on Ifemela. But then when I saw at the end, how it came together at the end, I realized, oh, I think I actually need to reread her tone here. And I appreciated that she really told it how it is. And the reality that it's not fair, that it's more on a woman, the consequence of unprotected sex, but that is the reality. And I want you to know that. And you could tell she was saying that because she loved her and not because she wanted her to be ashamed of herself or her body or her desires. And I loved also that if Amelia really took it to heart and later in the book is like, oh, my God, I have to tell her at that moment she's going to the hospital and, and she just pours it out. And Obinzi's kind of like, what? That had to be the most awkward car ride ever. <laughs> also, I'm from the South. This is not how things happen in the South. I just want to put that out there. Um, I thought that her relationship with his mom was my second favorite. Obviously, it's Amelia's relationship with Obinze was my favorite. It was I thought it was beautiful how authentic it was. And he was really drawn to who she was as a person and how she thought. Um, and I love that her friend was the traditional beauty that he was supposed to be being introduced to, Janika. And instead, he has been checking for Ifemailu this whole time. And she didn't know it. Um, so I, I love that. I love their interactions. I even love that when she finally wrote an email, which I thought, you know, was going to be... Yet another email she deleted. But when she finally wrote it and she finally sent it, you imagine someone ghosting you for years on end and then writing back like, ceiling, what's up? Don't use my nickname. Uh, you might need to call me by Miss Watson at that point because we don't know each other. <laughs> but she, she, it's like they immediately fell back into that flow of who they were. And I thought that her relationship with his mother was really beautiful because it was such a contrast with her own mother. Like her own mother was on her journey. I guess we all are, but her mother was on this journey, religious journey, bouncing around from different religions or different churches. 
almost hiding her head in the sand about auntie relationship with the general and the blessings that were coming as a result of that and what was involved with said blessings um, or the exchanges that were facilitating that. But so it's, it just felt like if Amelu could never connect directly with her mom in an authentic way, she kind of like moved in her orbit, but she wasn't having, she didn't share any discussions that she had with her mom where she was able to show up frankly or talk about things. And it seemed like she felt a refuge by more than one person in the in Obenze's household, which was beautiful. I echo everything Leah just said. Um, and I really loved this question because it actually was a reflective moment for me because if Amelu, I went in thinking she was my favorite like character. Um, I love a bold woman. Um, I, I like that she was really getting to know herself, um, you know, and as a teenager, she really asked questions and you know, um, but I see my my very favorite uh, is Obinzi's mom. Uh, you know, she is a single mom who lost her husband, um, educated professor, um, and just the way that she is to both Obinzi and and, and both of their relationship um, is absolutely incredible. And I love when Obinzi took a moment um, to dive into when he was struggling with his own bit of depression, even though he did not use that term, um, but not getting a job in Nigeria, not getting his visa to America. Um, and his mom really gave him that space, you know, um, allowed him to kind of take that time. And I think that's such an important piece of their dynamic and her maternal instinct. And then her going against the fabrication of her nature, being very moral and very ethical and putting him as her um, assistant, research assistant in London for her trip, which allowed him to have a six-month visa, which brought him to London. Um, and he, you know, notes that that, I think that was the mother's love right there in the book. Um, so I just, I absolutely adore her. And, and I, I want to I, I learn more about her as we continue to unfold. Yeah, I think that's a really great point because she brought him there against, I'm sure, her moral judgment, but she didn't coddle him. Like he still had to find work, figure it out. And when he pulled back, she was still reaching out. But I thought what was most beautiful, at least at the close of this part, the third part is she was there waiting for him when he got, when he came back after being deported. And I thought that was just a lovely way to end this hard chapter for him. Yeah. It was really beautiful to see it end with his, let's see what the sentence is. At the cordoned off area near arrivals, standing apart from the other expectant people, his mother was waiting for him. And you just can just see her there. Yeah, it's a beautiful moment. I've been noticing in a lot of books I've re read recently how much shame and secrets or jealousy create this divide in friendships or in loving relationships or in family relationships and... I know we talked about, we saw that with Ifemelu pulling away from Obinze, Obinze then and his mom, and he's not able to tell her how much he's struggling. And there was this tiny little sentence uh, early in the book where Obinze is talking about his wife, Kosi, and he says she always chooses peace over truth. And you could tell he kind of thought less of her because of that. I mean, I got the sense that generally he wasn't thinking super highly of his wife at that time. And... 
it made me see, I think so often in the story, the characters were choosing peace over truth, or maybe it was something else over truth, um, kind of self-protection, self-preservation over truth. And I'm curious how you all saw what the characters are choosing over truth again and again. That's a good question. I I think, well, and I also think something that we had talked about offline, which I want to bring into this, and I think kind of plays into this as well, is uh, the similarity of the journey that Ifemelu and Obinze end up being on, even though they're estranged and they don't know it. They both are living overseas and struggling to find work, struggling to make it. If Emelu ultimately sort of does make it in the U.S., um, Obinze ends up being deported. But I think in those experiences, they both have those moments where they pull away from the people from home that they love. Um, to And I, I don't know what others think about this, but it's almost like they needed to cut that cord in order to like make it where they are just like put their heads down and get through it and they can't even like talk about it or share about it and so i don't know what it would be that they're choosing over truth is it just like they're um not even wanting to look at the truth even for themselves to some degree because it's just really hard I mean, they're both in really hard moments in their lives in both of these sort of immigrant experiences that they're having. Um, I don't know what others think about that, but it seems to me like they're avoiding the truth even for themselves. I would say they, they're picking pride in some instances over truth. Not always, but I, I just think about Auntie Uyu. And she described a life in America that was different from what she was living. Um, And I think the same, maybe people at different times pick pride over truth. Or I thought it's Amelu's father and the fact that he would only offer social commentary and use complicated words when he was working demonstrated just a pride that is almost like he was only eligible to offer this when he was working um, and he didn't speak truth about other issues, regardless of if they were, uh, he didn't speak about his experience with other issues, regardless of if they were true or what he would be commenting on was true or bring someone closer to the truth about the government because he, because of the dent to his pride by not being able to provide for his family. I think for me, a paradox between truth and peace a character that stood out was Amike um and one of the scenes that I thought was really an important learning curve was when they're at the dinner party he's hosting with his wife Georgina um and he's recanting a story about the cabbie at night in London where he goes to flag a cab um and the cabbie turns off the light and keeps going when he pulls up closer to Minke. And then as Minke looks down the street, he sees the light is back on and the cabbie picks up two white women. Now, Obinze tells us that he heard that firsthand from Minke. 
and there was rage and emotion um, and frustration and anger from a case perspective, rightfully so, of course. Um, but then at the dinner party um, where they had their posh friends over in their posh Islington townhouse uh, and his white British wife Georgina asks Aminke to recant the story in front of their guests of Benze being present. It's a very different tone. Um, and there's that's when he chose peace and he withheld really the truth. Um, and I thought that was a really great way the author um, showed us, you know, how for a lot of Africans and Black persons in uh, racist situations, depending on who's in the room and, and reading that room and that audience, how they might portray that situation to others. Hello, everyone. It's Caitlin. I wanted to first say a sincere thank you for listening and also invite you to join our Patreon community. It's a place to continue these conversations off air, to submit your own thoughts and ideas to be on the show, for you to join a community that will help you prioritize fun and enjoyment in your own creative endeavors, whatever those may be, and for us to come together for in-person events. You can see what the community is all about for free by signing up for our newsletter where we share little snippets of what's going on on Patreon or go right ahead and join the community right now. All the links are in the show notes. There were a few instances when people did not choose peace, including at that dinner party, including when Ipame Lu made the remark to Laura um, and they were chastised in the moment. Like, how could you? Um, whether it was by a look or a comment, but it was very clear to them, like they are following a social script and you're supposed to choose peace as opposed to addressing issues that straightforward, which I'm not sure if this is true, but they, it, the examples that stand out to me have to do with race being an issue that where you should choose peace over um over truth because with it's a Malu, Laura was basically reflecting on she was reflecting on black Americans versus non-American black people and it's Malu was said we're not all the same like why would you assume we're the same here um which I you know the gasp and the reaction and the victimization that Laura the victim tendencies Laura exhibited afterwards were along those lines and and the same thing with Emanike because the you know, what we all know is, or what he experienced was that this cabin wanted to pick him up because he was a black man, but he didn't want to say that. And then when Obenze challenged him a little bit or challenged one of the guests on one of their assumptions, it was kind of like, why did you do that? And Emanike gave him yai or kind of, you know, shot him a look like, stop, you crossed the line. I noticed that too, that I I had in my notes that I wanted to talk about that scene with Ifemelu when she finally, after who knows how long, months and months of Laura making all of these racist comments to her, says something back and then isn't even allowed to hold the line on it because she feels... I think she was talking about how Kimberly, her employer that she feels close to, seemed upset. So she felt like she needed to go apologize to Laura, her sister. And it just made me think about, you know, something that we've talked about in Unified Sisters, too, is this, you know, the white woman who 
cries and is the victim when they're confronted with something that they've done that's racist. And I was like, this is a textbook moment of that in that, that, um, Chimamanda included in, in the story. And I hope for some better resolution than that, but, but it may just be that this is, this is just a moment that she's pointing out that happens, you know, and there is no resolution. I think Laura is just going to continue being that woman who's the victim. And Issa Melu isn't going to get an apology. Yeah, I think Laura could definitely sit in on a few of our co-op reckoning pods um, and, and learn a few things. Uh, and I also want to dive in on my own time to research if the author purposely used the word charity with Kimberly and her husband and Laura, particularly when they had the charity fundraisers at their home and they would invite Ifmelu as a, as a guest, but you know, she's really technically working for them and she would be surrounded with a lot of the white privilege and deep pockets there. And it was just reading and the way they would speak about, you know, um, African children and, and whatnot. I was like, wow, this is just dripping with white savior complex. And I feel like the author did a really good job of like, letting the reader take that and run with it versus going too much into it. But I thought the word charity that she used over and over to describe their work was really important. Yeah, I like that. I didn't, I remember reading it, but it didn't stand out to me as much. I think one thing that, you know, the the author threw in that we've kind of, we haven't talked about yet is her whole relationship, Ipamelu's relationship with Kirk, which is kind of like, this guy is, a member of this other world, um, the same as the family that Ithmailu is working for. And in some ways, he was very accepting of who she, he appeared to be very accepting, very excited just about her as a person. And in some ways, she's always seemed a little bit skeptical, even though he seemed to offer a lot of words of affirmation. When I saw you laugh, I knew I had to be with you. He was encouraging when she cut her hair. Yeah, that I think that narrative is one that kind of gets overshadowed by Obenze because they don't have the same connection. But it seemed to last. She moved to be with him. They traveled the world. She met his mom, who was a little bit meh on her um, or wanted to establish herself as the more powerful person, more privileged person. But yeah, I, I thought that was just a very remarkable narrative. Obviously, I didn't want her to end up with him, but it didn't take the turns that I expected. I was also surprised by that relationship because I kept waiting for Kurt to kind of be like Laura or, you know, I thought that was going to be part of the story. And I, I would be curious to reread it because I feel like Chimamanda really put Kurt as this positive character and and like you said if Emilio is always kind of questioning something about him or their dynamic and and then of course there's a moment where he you know I don't know if we call it cheating but started having that email exchange with this other woman and that was kind of the first like uh-oh is he really not what he seems and I'm curious if you all felt like that relationship was real love I think we all have this like no the real love is Obinze <laughs> um but what do you think if Amelu's feelings were through that relationship 
Was she ever in love with Kurt or what were the feelings she was having, if not that? I I felt like she liked him because he liked her so much. And it, I, in some ways. Um, and Obinze was like more of a challenge for her. Like they just seemed more like equals in a lot of ways, intellectually, emotionally. And Kurt, she always talks about him. It's almost like he's like a golden retriever or something. He's just like this character that's like unfailingly uh, positive, optimistic. And at one point, there's a scene that I thought was really interesting where they're in the car together. And she had just run into Coyote, their, her friend from high school, who mentioned that he had heard from Obinze and they're in the car and she's kind of deflated after hearing that Obinze was in London and just knowing anything about his life and Kurt you know is like oh I booked you this massage you know he's always doing these these things for her and she says thank you and he's just kind of like I don't want to thank you I want to be the love of your life and seems like really intense about it and at that point we all kind of know I mean, you're not the love of her life, Kurt. It's not going to happen. Um, and but I thought that was interesting. Like he, it's almost like he loves her a lot, and she's kind of like taken in by that, and and just wants to feel that love and care and affection. But it's not. I don't know. It's just not there with him the way it is with Obinze. Obviously, I got the idea that she felt seen. Like she refers to herself as the help when working with this family and she was you know going to school I think at one point during her depression she stopped going to class she wasn't you know she wasn't it didn't feel like she was fully integrated into the African student union she had friends there but it just felt like she was going through the motions in spaces where she wasn't necessarily seen or felt comfortable and it seemed important to her that he, you know, he reached out. He said that he wanted to be with her. And she almost seemed surprised that he was interested in her. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting. And then I also liked her meeting with Blaine. Clearly, I watch rom-coms. But I, I thought that that was great. And we haven't, all we've seen so far is him not answering the phone. But she said she called so many times. If what she... did you all make of that? Do you think that Blaine didn't pick up her calls or she got the wrong number or it's a miscommunication? What did what do you all think? He wrote the number. Maybe he was like in a relationship and he really liked her in that moment and felt that synergy. But then like his moral compass set in and maybe he has a significant other. But yeah, that that took a that took a quick right turn. I was like, oh. All right, Blaine, we'll see you later. I want him back. <laughs> yeah, she um, was so but... pressed, though. Well, he's coming back. Yeah. I guess, because remember, she talked about leaving her American boyfriend behind and telling her parents that he was coming, she was going ahead, and then he was moving. True. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we'll see more of Blaine, but I'm curious to see. How did you come back from that? <laughs> I'm also curious to see how her and Kurt waver uh, and, and how that... Um, neatly wraps up if neatly is the right term uh the one other aspect of kurt i was going to mention is i felt like by this point kurt might have been infatuation admiration but also potentially a reprieve because before she met kurt she was in such financial hardships 
She didn't even know she could write that $100 check for rent. She wasn't sending money home to her, her parents. She wasn't really even interacting with them. Um, she had to have that really <sighs> horrifying encounter with that man, you know, um, just to make that 100 bucks to pay rent. And then Kurt walks into the picture when she secures the babysitting job. And I felt like for her, she got a reprieve from her financial hurdle. She was making money. She was in a better place. And he literally offered her the world from travel. Um, and I think that was kind of also showing the difference between generational wealth in this book, where Kurt doesn't need to build it. It sounds like he's set for life. Um, sounds like he's a trust fund baby. And he's good. He's good. Where what she's trying to do, particularly coming to America, is build generational wealth uh, for herself, you know, um, her future family, her parents, et cetera. Um, and I thought that was a really important aspect of their relationship. So I think in a way he might have been at the right time, the right moment and a little bit of a reprieve. I agree with that. And it made me think about the theme of pride because the family asked her to move in with them. She would have had a separate entrance she did not have any money at that point and she still refused like i she moved from her the where she was living before but it was important to her not to live with them even if that meant that she was going to have to pay rent and wouldn't have as much to send home or to feel as stable which i thought was really just a really interesting point and, and demonstrated her approach and what was important to her kurt was also as Marie was alluding to this emotional reprieve that she could escape from all the, all her past. She didn't have to really think about it. And she also was never confronted with being challenged about really anything about herself. And it's interesting thinking about the criticisms Ifemelu had of Auntie Uju's relationships with men. She had the general and then there was uh, Bartholomew in the U S and both of them, she and I, I felt similar in the criticisms Ifemelu had of these relationships that Auntie Uju was really just prioritizing stability and tradition of, you know, Dyke needs this father figure and we need this certain type of family unit and their income over love and, and true connection. And in some ways, if Emelu was sacrificing these things for herself in that relationship with Kurt, too, it just didn't really look as bad as Auntie Uju's situations. I also enjoyed that the author dove into the topic of black hair when she was dating a white man. And that whole scene unfolded um, with her, you know, interviewing because of Kurt's connection, you know, got her that interview where she was able to secure a role. But being in America, she needed to relax her hair and all the chemicals and uh, pun intended the fallout of that. Um, and I just thought that was so well done because you were able to see her as an African woman dealing with the hair that is professional um, in America. And I actually watched um, a wonderful series that the author was a guest on. Um, it was a Danish broadcast where she was doing a Q&A and she was talking about this hair scene with Ifmelu, and she had mentioned her love for Michelle Obama. And she said that if Michelle Obama did not straighten her hair, Barack would not have gotten elected. That if Michelle would have decided to wear her natural hair, uh, perhaps in a fro, that 
the general American, particularly white public, would have potentially seen her as radical, maybe a Black Panther, not elegant, not professional. So I, listening to the author on that Q&A, I realized how sincere her intention was with that section of the book of hair and then also the way Kurt was there. And he really had no idea about the different dynamics um, and upkeep uh, for Black women's hair. I had highlighted that in a note. I feel like there were some turning points. We're getting to some turning points in in the book where I think things start to really change for Ifa Melu. And one of them is her deciding to stop using an American accent when she speaks. And that was right when she, that was the same day that she met Blaine on the train, I think. It was sort of like link those two things. She, she talked about them. And then the second part of that was this whole part where she she gets this job, but the um, African-American woman who is her career coach is the person who tells her, you need to straighten your hair or else you're not going to get this job. And then there's just, yeah, you know, the whole um, piece of that plays out where she is having physical impacts from that. And I think, is it Janika that cuts her hair off? Her friend is like, you, or one of her friends is the one that tells her yes. about the website for natural hair and cuts her hair off. Oh, it's Wambui. I think it's Wambui. That, okay. You're right. That um, was Wambui. I was thinking it was Janika because that was the, the friend we've gotten to know the best. But I do think that's important and powerful, like that we're moving through a transition point here uh, where she's becoming sort of her more authentic self. And she's not trying to be other than that anymore in this in this new place. I like that. I also thought that the progression of her hair was just felt very authentic. I read this book like you, Marie, maybe 10 years ago, eight years ago. I don't know how long. So I don't remember it. But I remember loving the tone of it. And I felt like this point in particular stood out to me as a Black woman and having all of the hair journeys that she had from having a relaxer to going natural and wondering, you know, hearing people's comments unsolicited and wondering how they were going to respond. But when Wambui pointed her to this website, that was a thing. Like, that is a cultural thing of the early 2000s and the 2010s when I first stopped relaxing my hair I was on the message boards looking up product recommendations looking up styles and many people I know who went natural in that time they spent hours on those sites and so that felt very nostalgic to me for her her friend to point her to this website she looked at the styles she told her on about it um you know, that was just a discussion and thinking about some of the, I guess now they would be called influencers, but they weren't called that then. Thinking about the influence they had and, and really not only on people individually, but also on the hair industry generally, where it went from having to make so so many of the products or having very limited um, capacity to buy products, you have to order everything to many of those products now being mainstream and sold in other places. And I thought that that kind of grounded it at a moment in time for me and where she was and made it feel like this was something happening like I don't know 2006 or 2008 
thinking through where people were at that time. And as you were talking, I, I think that's, I was thinking about the fact that throughout the, the way that she's weaving the story together is through Isamelu in a hair salon having braids done. That's the scene that we keep coming back to. That sort of the through line of like where she's at presently for us. So I think, you know, this seems like a really powerful part of the story. Maybe for the author, it sounds like she talked about it specifically in this interview that you saw, Meredith. I think there's something to this um, piece this, that's, that's big for her in terms of who she is and her authenticity in, in the U.S. Like she's coming back to herself maybe somehow. Yeah, I felt like she was coming back to herself. She also, I feel like that was a time that we saw her act the most like Emanike. Not completely like him, but she did flex on the girl who was doing her hair. And, you know, she mentioned like, oh yeah, I was at Princeton. Or, you know, she mentioned like, I've been in these spaces. You will never be. I don't want to get involved with you telling men they can marry you. It was just... I think that that was an interesting place to start because that's not the approach that she took throughout the first three, sec- you know, the first three parts of the book. But I don't know, maybe she was feeling herself that day or maybe she was just extra insecure about going back home and over projecting. But did that seem off to you, to y'all? I, that's so insightful, Leah, because like I didn't connect the dot. But now I do. Like now I absolutely see exactly what you're saying. Um that was that was a really good point. Yeah. I agree. I had not seen that connection between her and Emanike and the way she was acting in the hair salon. And up until I think at one point a white patron comes in, but up until then there were no other white people in the space. And then that begs the question, like, does that change the way that she feels comfortable or feels like she can flex or not flex. Can I just like sidebar and like ask like, Leah, in the early 2000s, if you're at a black hair salon, did white girls really come in and like think that they could get like a box braid or like cornrows? Was that like, I think nowadays, like 2022, is there more awareness? Like as a white woman, I would not go into a black hair salon to ask for that cultural appropriation moment. Um, but I, I mean, obviously, it's that's happened. definitely it's- happening now, though. I saw an Instagram recently where there's like a white girl who opens up her shop and she has like, y'all have probably never had your hair braided, but there's like, um, it's like a structure that they put on to, to space out the hair. And she has that and she's just doing white people's braids. But I don't, I've never seen white people in black salons. I feel like maybe somebody might like meander into a barbershop, but I just have never never seen that. I felt like she had to go search out this place. Maybe she just Googled braids, but you, and also having lived, the way that she describes the geography reminds me a lot of like Cambridge versus Boston, where I had to leave Cambridge, go through Boston to Jamaica Plain to get to the salon that I wanted to go to because there were ones closer. And that took over an hour. So I don't know where this person lived, but I don't think it was just like I swung by here. Yeah, I thought that that person was very interesting. And if I remember correctly, maybe the other person who was getting their hair braided was a black, like an American black woman. 
there was just so many dynamics and I, I wasn't ready to like, I don't know, pick up on all of them. But now looking back on it, it seems like such a contrast. Yeah, yeah you're so Very right much. about that. It, it she is, I think you're right. It's almost like a, a different moment in time from everything else we're reading in the book and the way that she's showing up in those spaces. So I, I want to go back and reread that now. It's a lot of layers. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that before. I and then I was thinking, well, is it like um because she's around other African people that now but she had that in the ASU and she didn't have that approach with them. So I don't know. Maybe it is like there's a lot of discussion about race, but so much more is about class or equally. I won't say so much more, but there's a lot of discussion and not having discussion explicitly about class. So maybe that is where she's acting differently because now she's the most educated person around potentially. Yeah. It's like where the class differences are coming out for her in that moment. I wondered, we haven't talked at all about any of her blog posts. I know we don't have that much time left, but I was curious what other people thought about. I mean, she becomes this sort of famous blogger, essentially, right? They People offer to buy her blog. She turns it down. There's just sprinkled throughout these blog posts that she's writing. I don't know if any other folks had ones that intrigued them or stood out to them. I love the blog. Absolutely. My favorite blog post is titled to my fellow non-American Blacks. In America, you are Black, baby. And she just goes, but I, I feel like the irreverent tone, the honest, which it may not even be so much that she's irreverent, but she's just being very honest about things that people don't speak openly about. I love, I think the blog posts are such a highlight. I, I completely agree, Leah. And honestly, for me, this was like co-op material for us. Like one of my favorites, chapter 19, um, titled Understand America for the Non-American Black, What Do Wasps Aspire To? Um, and as a white woman in a leadership role in diversity and inclusion, this one, I like, if you see my book, I highlighted everything. So I'm like, what? Basically, it's a theme of, quote, oppression Olympics. And she said, in America, there is no United League of the Oppressed. And she details Black to Latin to Asian, also goes into sex, women versus men. And then one of the last lines, the last line of the blog is, so if everyone in America aspires to be a wasp, then what do a wasps aspire to? Does anyone know? And I, I went I went deep. I went down the rabbit hole of that question. I want to bring it to Unified Sisters because that's good. That's really good. It's yeah. a really good one. I also love the blogs. And now hearing hearing you all talk about this evolution we see in Ifemelo, it's making me realize oh, this blog is also part of her finding her voice. And like you said, Leah, it's, you know, irreverence or just conversational, whatever you want to call it. It's hilarious. And I love it, the tone that she uses. And she steps into that. And we we don't, we haven't yet seen, like, how she became totally that person. There's this gap in the story so far. And in the present moment, she hasn't actually left that hair salon yet. And so, you know, looking towards the second part of this book, you know, who is she going to become? Are we going to see how she became this person? And I think as kind of a wrap-up question, I'm curious if any of you have 
predictions or hopes for the rest of the book? Well, I clearly hope that she yes. connects with Obense. And I wish that I remembered well enough to figure out how that happens. But that would probably be my number one hope. <laughs> yes, exactly that. That is my number one hope as well. And I think there was a scene in this section. It's kind of foggy because I think it was towards the beginning where he has like received and Obense has received another email from Ifemelu that she's back in Lagos and he's like kind of feeling excited and and like starting to respond but we haven't gotten that yet so I'm just I'm just waiting and hoping that they have a a reconnection and the the years-long ghosting on both sides now is is ended echo all of that um I also uh one of his mom and him to be in like a great place and everything if by state of India and if Melu end up together, I do hope it's uh, very amicable and everything's okay with Kosi because one of our topics was peace and truth. And she obviously chooses peace than truth, but she sounds like a really good woman and a good heart. So um, I'm really curious to see where if Melu's journey professionally to go back to Nigeria, because she's invested so much of herself spiritually, emotionally, mentally, financially into life in America, uh, very educated, wonderful career path um and and missed home and, and wants to go back so i'm so curious to see if we learn about her next chapter it makes you think will she continue her blog and adapt it back to being in nigeria in some way i'm glad you brought up those things meredith because i'm just totally blinded to right now just her and obense like i'm so hyper focused on it that i can't think of anything else <laughs> i also thought it was interesting that she was w- willing to sell her blog because it, it's so personal and, it, and it's her perspective. And um, I, I would just be kind of like paranoid, like to, to, to sell. The, I mean, obviously make some money for sure. Uh, but like, in what hands do you leave it in? Yeah, I'm, I'm really intrigued by Obense's part development too, like his art. Because what he loved about Ipamelu is that she was irreverent and she was badass and she was known for talking back. And then he ends up married to a woman, Kosi, who seems sweet, but is like complimented that people call her beautiful because she's biracial and um, doesn't really give those same types of vibes. And so I'm not sure if he changed as he ascended or if there's always some, you know, deep yearning for that fiery personality that it's a Malu brings. But I'm interested to see how all of the characters develop yes you wonder if Kosi is kind of obinze's kurt his refuge if that is how she came to be part yeah. of his life that's a good point thank you so much everyone for doing this i'm so excited for yeah. part two this is really fun yeah i think this is great i'm excited to to see how this story unfolds and, and uh, talk with you all again Before we go, we've got two listener messages sharing their greatest takeaways from Americana. Don't worry, there are no spoilers for part two of the book. First up, we've got a message from Liz, who lives in Florence, Italy, and then we'll hear from Muthoni of Nairobi, Kenya. Thank you, both of you, for sharing your thoughts with us. The book opened up my mind on how are things in America for an immigrant, and that even though our cultures are not so different, Things are not the same between my continent, Europe, and theirs. The thing that I learned from this book and from my actual experience as an immigrant 
is that life isn't so easy as movies make it seem abroad. And when you're in a country totally different from yours, you need to work out really hard to stick out. The quote I liked the most was, racism should never have happened, and so you don't get a cookie for reducing it. That's because it's actually true. If we would have lived all in peace accepting each other, probably things would have been different now. My name is Modani from Nairobi, Kenya. One of the ways this book changed me because it centers a contemporary African woman, which is something I had not seen in the books I was reading, is that it made me feel seen. It made my experiences as an African living on the continent feel very validated. One of my greatest takeaways from Americana, and especially following Ifemelu's journey and seeing how trying to assimilate into American culture slowly chipped away at who she was, and that was until she came into her own until she learned to celebrate everything that made her different. And different here is not necessarily a bad thing. Until she embraced herself in full splendor, her natural hair, her accent, and her body. To me, this communicates that you're allowed to exist as you are, that there's beauty in your authenticity, and you should give yourself permission to show up as you, because that authenticity radiates in all aspects of your life. This is a podcast, but it's also like more than a podcast. Don't Talk to Me Unless It's About This is a place for people in love and obsessed with storytelling to share in our admiration of books, music, comedy, and other forms of story, and to fuel our own creativity. So we have a Patreon community that you can try out for free. It's a place to continue these conversations off air to submit your own thoughts and topic ideas to be shared on the show. Join a community to help you prioritize fun and enjoyment in your own creative endeavors, whether those are hobbies or professionally, and for us to come together for in-person events. You can see what the community is all about for free by signing up for our newsletter, where we'll share little teasers of what's going on in Patreon. Or you can go right ahead and join the Patreon right now. All the links are in the show notes. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. So please tell us by leaving a review, emailing us, or sending a message on Instagram. 